All right, folks. I don't normally start this off this way, but I will today. Open your Bibles to 1 John, to the book of 1 John. Don't worry, there's plenty of Scripture on the screen, but there's plenty that's not. And, um, and it, it was going to be too long, too difficult to have all these uh, Scripture verses I'm going to reference here in a few minutes uh, on slides. All right, so uh, it is a discipline, I think, to bring your, your Bible to church and to uh, engage it in the sermon, especially since we use different versions from time to time. Uh, the Scripture verses that were read earlier were out of the New King James. Uh, the Scripture verses that I'll be reading are out of the ESV, uh, and um, so just uh, take note of that. All right, uh, so what we have been doing, first of all, I planned on getting all the way through uh, the end of the book of 1 John today. That was a lofty goal. Uh, I have less than half an hour as it stands right now to get through what I would normally have taken 45, 50 minutes to get through. And so uh, through the first service um, with the different additional prayers and announcements and stuff, I only got through verse 17, so we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. But before we do that, I'm going to take you through a good portion of what we've studied thus far, all right? So we will continue the First John series for one more week um, so I can finish off the text. But let's enter into what John was accomplishing as he wrote this text. He wrote this letter to build a confident faith in the Christians who read it, Right? Not only the ones who read it, but the ones who read it. You and I are here this morning, and John's goal for us is that we will grow in confident faith. That faith that we have come to believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, in 1 John 1, 1 through 5, what we see, we're going to unpack this, this idea that John wrote his letter to build confident faith. I'm going to look at two passages. The first one is in uh, chapter 1. We're going to read 1 John 1, 1 through 5. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John has a gift. He is a black and white writer, black and white preacher. Uh, there is so much within the text of 1 John that we understand. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. You're either in darkness or you're in light. You're either one or the other of something, and he makes it very clear where he stands. And so he says that he's writing this message to proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John writes this letter to build a confident faith in the Christians who read it. And so we can consider the challenge before us to also grow in this confidence. So that was 1 John 1, 1 through 5. Turn to, to chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Chapter 3, verses 21 and 23 said, Beloved, there's a common word that John uses to, to speak to his recipients. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, 
We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Consider this. We are seeking, or John is seeking, to grow confident, to build confidence in faith. Well, that faith, first of all, is based upon John's personal testimony. He is proclaiming what he heard, what he saw, what he touched. He's proclaiming Christ. And then when we look at this text, we we understand he's proclaiming the gospel. And that gospel is what gives us confidence as we are to understand that the commandment is that we believe in the name of his son, God's son, Jesus Christ, and that we would one, one, love one another as he's commanded us. So that's important for us that we, that we address this idea of building confidence in our own lives. Why are we need, in need of confidence? Well, consider this. John confronted the doubt caused by false teachers. There is an enormous number of texts that we're going to read here in just a moment. And, and let me just pause here for a minute. John was confronting something. He saw a need in the church. And maybe that need is here this morning. Maybe there's people within, our, within this room or joining us online that have doubts about their faith. Why is John trying to build confidence? Because doubt is present. And we, we looked at uh, Thomas last week in terms of this idea of doubt. But John confronted the doubt specifically caused by the false teachers that were in that uh, church. Remember, there are people within, uh, within Christianity that are not genuine Christians. All right? They're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They are, they are in our midst, and they either are, one, trying to subvert us from the true gospel, or they think that they're Christians, and they're just deceived, and they've never come to a genuine faith. And they start promoting things, sharing things, teaching things, believing things that are just not the gospel. And they are not biblical. And the the false teachers were present in John's day. They're present in our day. And we ought to be on the lookout for them. But let's understand foremost, false teachers bring doubt into an assembly of believers. Because you, I don't know if I'll remember to say this later, but let me say it now. We don't always know who is not a Christian, do we? We could say it on the positive, we don't know who is Christian, but we, we don't know if someone's not a Christian, if they come to our fellowship, if they're, if they're active in fellowship and social engagements and, and they're nice people, you know, the assumption is that they're a Christian and that they're genuine believers. And, and so I'm not saying you start questioning everybody around you, but we, let's be wise in understanding that there were false teachers present in this church. There will be those who one day stand before the judgment seat of God and they'll say, but, 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 and Jesus will say, I never knew you. I think these false teachers will probably be some of those people at some level. And, uh, and the danger of false teaching is it brings doubt into the lives of genuine believers. So I want you to see how much time and effort John spends. All right, so go back to chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off in chapter 1. And we're going to start going through a series of verses. And just notice the, 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 the contrast in each of these uh, passages of Scripture. All right, 1 John verses 6 and 7 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's one or the other, folks. We are either walking uh, in the light or we're walking in darkness. He goes on in verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is very clear that there is this, this reality that Christians sin. But there are those that say, we have not sinned. And those are the false teachers coming in. Can you imagine the doubt that comes into a person's mind when they're told, you know, if you're a Christian, you never sin again. Think about what that did to you just now. What do you mean? If I'm a Christian, I never sin? Well, the false teachers were promoting that. I want, I want to ask, do you think there's doubt in this room today? Possibly. Do you think there's doubt in the local church whose pastor may have, again, I don't know if he's guilty or not, may have fallen into sin? Do you think that church bodies they gather today, they're not some people, hopefully they're still sitting where they normally sit. And hopefully they're there thirsty for the Word of God to build their confidence, the confidence of faith that they once possessed, but now something has happened. It's not a false teacher. It's a genuine brother in Christ who's fallen into sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They are dealing with the topic of sin in their assembly today, and we need to pray for them, and we need to understand that there are those who say they have not sinned. That does not represent that congregation. I'm saying that John was dealing with that in his congregation. As we go on in the text, chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we see, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John is saying the false teachers are characterized by saying one thing and living another, or basically saying completely something completely wrong, and saying we don't have to live a certain way. John clarifies very clearly. He... Uh, Getting back to my, to my text. It says, uh, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Our Christian life is supposed to be characterized by obedience to God's word. False teachers were not promoting that truth. They were causing people to doubt. Starting in verse 9, it says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Once again, seeing the contrast between those who walk in the light and walk in the darkness. And it revolves around the idea of loving one another. John has taught on that extensively. And folks, listen, if we don't heed the challenge that John is, is bringing before us to love one another then we ought to repent of that. Make sure your life is characterized by a confident faith in God and that is lived out 
and an expressive love to your brothers and sisters in Christ for sure. Going to verse 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. As we finish off the book of 1 John next week, we'll consider this truth once again, that we have victory in Jesus, that our salvation is secure, and that we can know that we are in Him, as John has just told us. Going to verse 18, keep continuing. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might, have been a, uh, that it might become plain that they are not of us. The reality is there will be those who leave the church not because of being dissatisfied, but of not believing the faith in Christ. John says that if people leave the faith, not leave a church, people leave a church. But if they leave the faith, it's because they were never genuinely believers in the first place. 20 and 21 goes on to say, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He's saying, listen, I know you folks. John knows these people. They're beloved. They have been impacted in a very negative way by these false teachers. And he's saying, listen, I'm saying all this, I'm warning you, I'm guiding you, I'm seeking to educate you so that you might know and know and know and know. But he's saying, you are already those who know the truth. They, have, they are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Oop, I went way too fast. All right, jumping into, you know, I'm going to go ahead. Let's just jump to 1 John 3, 6 through 9. Uh, we see... That he says, no one who abides in him either, uh, let me double check, I'm in the right verse. Yeah, there we go. Uh, no one abides in him, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning um, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Once again, this particular passage is reiterated in 1 John 5, uh, 18 through 20, which we're not going to get to today. But we see that he's warning, he's warning his folks between the truth and the untruth. All right, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep going here and just say, as John concludes his letter, he continues to encourage Christians that they can have confidence in their faith. He is focused on making sure that genuine Christians have confidence in their faith in Christ. 
But so as we get into the end of this, this particular text, this is the big idea that will last for this week and next week. Confident faith, our confident faith, your confident faith leads to Christ-centered worship. That Christ-centered worship will come as we engage the truth of, of, uh, of verse 21. But for right now, we're going to be focused on this idea of this confident faith that we are able to possess. Uh, John in chapter 5 has already given us two areas of confidence. The first one is that God's Word tells us that we can have confidence that we have eternal life. Uh, we covered that last week. We talked about three convictions. Convictions come when we have confidence in what is being taught. And so this confidence, he's saying, listen, you can know that you have eternal life. I have been told so many times in my Christian life, how can you know? You can't really know. You don't know until you get there. You don't know until you die. That is not the teaching of Scripture. If you've ever believed that, if you've ever heard that, hopefully you don't believe it, but if you've ever heard that, it's coming from a deficient knowledge of what Scripture teaches. Because John is saying very clearly, you can know that you know God and that you're known by God. This confidence, this idea of knowing, is a knowing that is saying it's for sure, it's, it's set in stone, it's, it's written in Scripture, it's, been, it's the Word of God. God's Word communicates to us very clearly that we can have confidence that we have eternal life. And, and folks, let me encourage you. If you don't have that confidence, it's, it's right here in front of you. You need to come to a faith. It was spoken earlier as we had these, this, this couple join church today. As you, as you pronounce your, your trusting in what Christ has done on the cross to pay for your sins. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to wander. Wander or wonder. Whatever, however you say that, right? You don't, have, you don't have to do either because you can have confidence that Jesus Christ died in your place on that cross and he will forgive you of your sin. Ask and you shall receive, right? God, Jesus said, you know, when, when you pray, you don't, you don't get what you, what you asked for because you didn't ask the right way. You didn't ask the right person. You didn't ask, you know, you didn't have faith. Come to faith. Pray a prayer of faith asking Christ as the Son of God to forgive you for your sins. Confess, repent, and God brings life. All right? So, second one that we looked at is God's words tells us that we can have confidence that God hears and answers our prayers according to His will. He hears and answers. Both those are in the present tense. He's hearing in the moment. He's answering in the moment. We may not see the answers till much later, but He has answered them. It is a done deal because we are in the person of God. God is not hindered by time. He is answering our prayers. What prayers? The ones according to his faith. And this is where I don't think I was as clear as I would, would have liked to have been last week. And I had a, a couple texts, a couple emails, all very positive, just saying, oh, I'm not sure if I understand exactly or I'm thinking this through a little bit more. I may not even address your concerns as I address these next slides, but let me just bring your attention to a couple things. One, the primary focus of prayer is to pray in accord with God's will. That's one of those basic understandings of Scripture. We understand when we come to prayer that we are to pray according to His will. Well, what is His will? Well, the reality is God's will is known in many ways through direct encounter with His revelation, right? With the revelation found in the Word of God. There are plenty of times where, where we are engaged in Scripture and we're reading and, and we can just pause right there and pray. As a matter of fact, if you consider this, the study of God's Word will radically change your prayer life 
our prayer life when we pray what we learn. Listen, I hope you have the discipline of, of, uh, of daily devotions. I hope you have the discipline of coming to His Word and, and, and reading and learning and growing. Well, why not add prayer into that? As you learn, why not pray what you just learned? It will revolutionize your prayer life. So often we come to God with prayer and we have our list. Nothing wrong with a list. But let's not just be a list-oriented prayer person, right? Let's not just be list-oriented. Let's be glory of God-oriented. Let's be, let's be will of God-oriented. And let's, let's study God's Word. Let's, when you enter the Psalms and you hear David pouring out his heart in, in repentance to the Lord, why not pray about repentance? As, as David is extolling God for his protection, why not just pause and praise God for his protection? If you come to an encounter of Scripture where it's talking about evangelism, why not pray about an opportunity to evangelize? If you come to a portion of Scripture that is, that is calling to the forefront of your life the doubt that exists in your own mind and heart, why not stop and pray and say, God, deal with my doubt? Because we know, we know much of the will of God. It's given to us in His Word. But let me be honest and frank here. God's will is often unknown. <laughs> God's will is unknown in many of the petitions we pray. So what do we do? We pray for his will to be done. I think I might have come across in the second service, this service last week, uh, as saying, you know, that you don't need to practice that, 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 that practice of, but Lord, your will be done. No, Jesus practiced it in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mentioned it in the first service last week. I think I failed to mention that part in this one. And so let me emphasize, Jesus modeled a beautiful prayer. Lord, allow this cup to pass from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. I think we can follow our Savior and say there are those, now granted, can we enter into that true prayer? I, I, I don't have time to do that today, but Jesus prayed a difficult prayer there. What do you mean, if this cup can pass? Oh, study your word and then pray about it, all right? What we have to understand here is we can pray for his will to be done. And we ought to pray that his will will be done. In other words, we place our trust in God knowing his will is best. So uh, uh, John says, listen, Pray according to his will, and he answers, right? He hears and he answers the prayers that are asked according to his will. Well, what, are, what is his will? Well, if you don't know, worship him and enter into this, this idea that he knows what his will is. And, and I, I'm going to share two more slides, I think, in this regard, and then we'll be done in this section. Is the idea the primary focus of prayer is to pray in accord with God's will, but the primary benefit of prayer itself, this is what I was trying to communicate, I reworded it, the primary benefit of prayer itself is not in having the answers we desire. If we come to prayer with our list and say, this is what God has to do to meet my expectations, first of all, I don't think it's a healthy prayer life. Secondly, be prepared to be disappointed. We are praying according to His will. The primary benefit of prayer is not having the answers we desire, but in communing with the God who answers prayer. Prayer is that precious time of, of interrelatedness with our Heavenly Father, with the Trinity. And we can come with our petitions. We can come with our intercessory prayer, which is what John's going to be challenging us here in just a minute. 
But let's not miss the beauty of prayer. Prayer is our opportunity to commune with God. As we read His Word, as we pray His Word, as we seek His will, as we discover His will, and as we're communing with Him, it is amazing what can happen in a Christian's life when they are dedicated to a prayer life that is centered in the will of God. John now gives a specific example of answered prayer. All right? In 1 John 5, 16 and 17, the only verses we're going to be able to get through, but I'll be pushing it to get through it. Okay? Here we go. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. All right, let's go to verse 17. Right? No, I wish I could. But listen, I don't know if there's any more confusing words in the English language when it comes to this particular text for us to wrestle with, but we're going to wrestle with them for a few minutes. So bear with me, all right? I was saying John is that black and white apostle. He likes to say dark and light, life and death, right? Children of God, children of Satan, all black and white. Here's a big gray area for us, all right? And we're going to enter into this gray area uh, little by little. First of all, we see that Christians are to pray for Christians when they witness them committing sin. All right, this is the first thing he says. He says right here, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, the idea of the anyone in the brother or sister, right? If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin not leading to death, the first thing we're supposed to understand is that Christians are to pray for Christians when they witness them committing sin. Uh, so I, I'm asking you, well, actually, I'll ask you uh, forthrightly here. Let me just, I, all right, as we continue, as we consider this, uh, when are we supposed to do that praying? When we witness them committing sin? Uh, he says, when you see it. Notice what he says. It's not when you hear about it. It's not through the ear gate that is supposed to motivate you to prayer. Now, granted, if you hear of something, right, I, I truly hope that you would go to prayer for that as well. But notice what he's saying here. If anyone sees his brother, it's a, an event that is being witnessed. One believer is witnessing another believer. What is supposed to happen? First of all, they're committing a sin. He sees his brother. supposed to be an underline there, right? He sees his brother committing a sin. If you see a brother or sister committing sin, you're supposed to do something. And by the way, I think there's plenty of opportunity for us to witness our brothers and sisters in Christ committing sin. John's already dealt with it. Don't say you're not a sinner. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, right? We know that. We know that to be true. Don't say you're not a sinner. He sa- what are we supposed to do? It says he shall ask. Anyone who sees his brother committing a sin shall ask. It's the idea of praying. We know in the context he's talking about praying. That's what he means by ask. We're asking God. It's a prayer. Because he, he, he says, listen, um, Christians are to pray for Christians, right? This is something we are supposed to engage in on a regular basis. So I ask you to ask yourself this question. Read it in your mind. Am I characterized by praying or spreading the news? Listen, I just saw a brother or sister in Christ sin. Do I drop to my knees in prayer or am I looking for the next brother or sister in my small group or my Bible study or who's, who I, who's I got on my speed dial? Hey, guess what I just saw? Right? Now listen, that's the worst way of looking at this, right? I, I, I'm constantly encouraging people. Can we not just think the best of one another? Do we have to jump to the negative? Listen, am I characterized by praying or spreading the news? Well, we ought to be characterized by praying. 
When you see a brother and sister in prayer, the immediate response is supposed to be prayer to God on that person's behalf. It's called intercessory prayer. You're intercessing to God for these people. Now, praying does not mean we do, we do not also confront. It doesn't mean we forget the other part of it. I'm, I'm going to skip through these pretty quick here. But we know from Matthew 18 that if you see your brother sin, you go tell to him one-on-one. Then, then if that doesn't work, you bring two or three in the mix. And if that doesn't work, you bring them before the church. And then if he still refuses to listen, and I would say the idea of there is, if he refuses to repent, to confess and repent his sin, if he refuses that, then what does it say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Listen, we, we are supposed to still confront we're not off the hook. If we see a brother or sister sin, pray first, confront second. James even says in, in, in chapter 5, 19 and 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, right? The confronting has taken place. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And there's all kinds of different ways we can unpack that verse, but we don't have time today to do that. This is just uh, uh, demonstrating that what John is saying is not foreign to other writers, all right? So we see that Christians are to pray for Christians when they witness them committing sin. Notice that God answers the prayer positively. It says here that he shall, that we, the person seeing the brother or sister witnessing shall ask, and what does God do? And God will give him life. That's good news, isn't it? God's going to give that person life on, on behalf of your intercessory prayer. God steps into action and he gives that person life. All right? Uh, what does it mean that God will give life? Enter the head-scratching gray area. All right? What does it mean that God will give life? What is a sin not leading to death? Notice he says it twice in, in verse 16. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, to those who, he's saying, listen, God's going to give life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So there's this idea of, of, of what is a sin not leading to death and, and what is the sin uh, leading to death. And I'm telling you right now, if you came expecting to hear the answer to that question, well, maybe I can do a better job as I unpack it next week a little bit more. But I'm telling you, let me just walk through my slides, all right? The rest of verse 6 says this. Excuse me, verse 16 says this. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. This, these are some of the most amazing verses in Scripture to wrap your head around. So what can we learn about them? Well, let's pause for a moment uh, as, as we consider this. We should not demand clarity where the Bible does not give it. And this is one of those things, this is a, thus saith Greg, all right, I'm just saying, listen, there are, there's so much passion for God's Word, right? And as, we're drawn, uh, as, we, as we learn and learn and learn and learn, we really like to have the answers. And Scripture does not always give us clear-cut answers. And some of those are the biggest disputes within any church body. But I'm just saying, listen, as we consider what is life, what is death, we'll talk about that in a minute. We should not demand clarity where the Bible does not give it. Just like we should not add to the God's Word or take away from it, I don't think we should emphasize something as being so clear when it's really not that clear. 
Because when the recipients of John's letter must have known what Jesus was, was, was teaching them. Because, I mean, he's been very clear all along. I don't think his intent was to confuse them, right? And I don't think his intent is to confuse us. But as he's writing to them in the context, they must have known what he was talking about. But we do not know for certain exactly what John is teaching regarding life and death in relationship to sin. And I hope that doesn't disappoint you too much because that's just the truth. The number of opinions about what John is teaching is staggering. I have spent hours and hours and hours. And, you know, there's commentaries I read regularly, right? And I, I read from different views and all this stuff. I'm telling you right now, there's no uni- uh, unanimous opinion about what John is saying here. And so what, what are some of the things that we consider? Is life physical or spiritual? I'm telling you, there's discrepancies. There's differences. People say, well, is one or the other or it's a combination of both? Is death physical or spiritual? Well, that, if life is physical or spiritual, then the death is probably similarly physical or spiritual to, to correspond. Is this the same as the unpardonable sin? Is he saying the sin that leads to death is, this, is the unpardonable sin, that sin that, every, that many people fear that they've committed? And by the way, if you ever fear that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. Because the unpardonable sin is, is attributing to, to Satan the work of Jesus, Right? He said, remember the, the false, uh, the religious leaders, it's by the power of Beelzebub that you do this. It's the power of Satan that you do this. Ah, no, 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 no. You can't do that. This is the power of God, and you just attributed it to Satan. Uh, is this that, the same as the unpardonable sin? It's not the exact same, but it might be under the same umbrella. It's the idea that this sin leading to death, there's, there's disbelief involved. There is, uh, it's not a particular sin. It's more of a type of sin. And, and so, and John does not enumerate it for us. He doesn't give us clarity. And then the last question about this particular section is John saying we should not pray for certain people. Notice that, oh, let's, let's go back. Uh, well, maybe I go forward. Uh, no, I, I should have had a slide there. So let me just go back here. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I probably have this slide again, but I'm out of time. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Well, what is Paul saying? Uh, Paul, John. What is Paul, John saying, right? Let's focus on what he is clearly teaching. First, and this is what most people miss, by the way. They engage in, what's the sin of death? And they spend hours and hours and hours trying to, but they, they miss the point. The point isn't focused on the sin of death. The focus is we must pray with confidence for erring brothers and sisters. That's what we must do. It is not an option. We must pray with confidence for erring brothers and sisters. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. Uh, There are unending ways that people can sin and therefore unending ways to pray. So be prayerful about your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he finishes off verse 17 and he makes this point. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So uh, let's consider what we uh, do not fully understand, all right? So we understand we need to pray for the erring brother and sister. And I am rushing, and I apologize, but we've got to finish up here. What are we going back? Let's consider what we do not fully understand. What does this verse mean? This idea of, I do not say that one should pray for that. We must exercise caution if we pray for those living in rebellion towards God. Just like we said we can exercise confidence in praying for the erring brother, the erring brother or sister, 
right? We're commanded to do that pretty much. You see it, see him sin? Pray. But, but as, he, as he says here, it, uh, I do not say that one should pray for what? The, the person committing a sin that leads to death. And so I think what, the way I phrase it is this. We must exercise caution. He doesn't say you can't pray. Some people think that's what he's saying. I don't think that's the case. Uh, he's not saying that we should pray or that we shouldn't pray. Uh, he says very clearly, I do not say that one should pray. But that's not a command to not pray. All right? So we must exercise caution if we pray for those living in rebellion towards God. The reality is that John is in the context of teaching the church family that there are false teachers in their midst, and they need to be aware that that is happening, but they, they may not know what the false teacher looks like, what his name is, what his address is, because that's why they're so effective. They're false teachers within the midst. And they may be considered Christians, but they're not Christians. There's unbelief. There is wrong doctrine. He's saying, listen, if you're going to pray for them, listen, exercise caution if we pray for those living in rebellion towards God. Why? What do I mean by that? Christians are not to pray for God's blessing upon the rebellious. We are to pray for the repentance. And I, I, I'm thinking this is probably where we're ending, all right? We are not called to ask blessings upon those people who are living rebellious lives. He's going to say in the next verse that we are not able to continue our sin because of Christ, right? He's going to say that. We'll look at that next week. But what we are to pray is for repentance. Folks, listen, I don't care if it's a, if it's a believer or unbeliever. If you see sin, pray for repentance. But understand this. Don't ask blessing upon someone who's living in open rebellion, teaching false doctrine. When you get into 2 John, uh, he says, listen, don't, don't wish them Godspeed. Don't invite them into your home. They are false teachers with a false message. Call them out. Do not follow them. Right? Christians are not to pray for God's blessing upon the rebellious but for their repentance. And that's, that's where we'll end today. Um, again, I had a lofty goal of getting through verse 21. And as you can see very clearly, I failed at that goal. But let's close in prayer. And, uh, and let's consider, in, while we pray, how we can respond to this. Father, I thank you for the way your word so clearly helps us identify who is in light and who is in darkness. I thank you, Father, that because of your word, we can know that we have eternal life. We can know that you hear and answer prayers. We can know that Jesus is the Son of God. We can know that our sins are forgiven. We can know that if, that if we pray for an erring brother or sister, that you will uh, restore that person. We can know these things, Father, because you are God and we are not. You have revealed them to us. Lord, I pray that as we study your revelation, as we read your word, and as we pray your word, that we would grow in our understanding of what it is that you are doing in this world, in our life, in the life of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's so much we do know, Father, and we pray according to your will in those areas. There's so many things we do not know, Father. We do not necessarily know who an unbeliever is or who a believer is. We make educated uh, decisions. We have opinions. Uh, but, Father, only you truly know. Father, the concern is, is that 
we know that we are in Christ. And we can know that because your Spirit confirms that in our life. And Father, certainly we can look at the testimony of our brothers and sisters and we can be confident in their salvation. But Father, give us wisdom to see the the false teachers that are out there that are preaching a different gospel, that are minimizing the person of Jesus Christ, that are somehow uh, skewing the, the, the work of Christ. Lord, help us to be able to identify those people and to, and to steer clear of them. Lord, draw us to you through your word so that we might truly be able to know all that you desire for us to know. Father, for those that have doubts in this room about their faith, they do not possess this confidence that leads us to Christ-centered worship. Father, I pray that you would bring this to their attention. Help them to understand their lack of confidence. And then, Lord, do your work in their heart to help them understand they can grow in that confidence. They can grow in an understanding of your word. And their life can be strengthened and it will glorify you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that doubts and they've been a believer for a long time, that you would settle those doubts in short order. I pray, Father, if there's someone here that doubts because they've never come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, Father, that they would bow their head at this very moment and ask you to forgive them for their sins. All of them. Because they realize that their sin leads to death. Lord, I pray that you would bring life to that person. Eternal life that is found only in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you'd be glorified as people confess their sins, repent from them, and ask you to be their Savior. Father, we pray that this would be true of those within the hearing of my voice, but also, Father, that we would be messengers of the gospel as we live it out in day-to-day life. May you be glorified as people respond to your word. Lord, thank you for the confidence that you've given to us. May we live in light of it each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.